we finished parables. So we are going to be starting a 10-week study on the heart of God. It's going to be a church-wide study. I'm going to be preaching on different aspects um, of God's heart throughout the week, but we also have community groups that are going to be meeting throughout the week that I want to encourage you uh, to be a part of them. We have some, I know sometimes weeks can be busy, we have two that are meeting at the church at 9 o'clock, so before the service, we have one that's for everybody, it meets at 9 o'clock, uh, Chris Harden will be teaching that. We also have a ladies community group or ladies study that will also be meeting at 9 o'clock on uh, Sunday morning, and I'm horrible, I don't remember the classroom numbers, but they're upstairs. If you go upstairs, you find a bunch of people meeting, go there. Um, we also have a men's study that's meeting here at the church on Wednesdays at 7 p.m., so um, if those groups work for you, I want to encourage you to get in one of those groups. You can find those groups online, and then there's some community groups meeting throughout the week. If you have any questions about that, you can come see me. And then we also have a book that's going to augment our study. It's called Gentle and Lowly. We have copies for anybody that wants to be a part of this out in the lobby. You can pick one up on your way out. Um, for next week, just read chapters 1 and 2. But that's what we're going to be using. So if you have one, great. If you need to get one, they're out on the lobby and you can pick one up. Again, it's uh, gentle and lowly. I am actually looking forward to this study. Obviously, I, I went through that book and, and Pastor Tim and I, we've been preparing for this study. But this is going to be uh, just an encouraging time that we could just come together as a church family and just be focused on studying God's heart. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next 10 weeks. Everybody um, is going to be focused on this. And we're going to study it as a church body. And there's something about being unified in our study. So I am encouraged uh, to do that. Now before we start talking about God's heart, we have to define God's heart. Because we could use heart to mean a whole bunch of different things. There's several different definitions or things that can be implied for God's heart. One of them is the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. That is not what we're referring to. We are not going to be dissecting hearts and looking at them in a biology way in church. That's not what we're looking at. The other one is referring to somebody's emotional disposition. So how they feel at that time. There are so many factors that go into this feeling that often it's very emotional and illogical. There's like no reason why we feel, oh, this is just what my heart feels like. And there's so many things that affect that. Lack of sleep, lack of food. Um, we can be in a situation, and if we're really tired, or if we're really hungry, it can make that situation super miserable. Like if we're stuck in traffic, and it just compounds. Say, oh, my heart is heavy, my heart is hard. However, if we're stuck in traffic with, I don't know, somebody you like, or maybe with a chocolate milkshake, it really isn't that bad. Right? You're like, eh, traffic, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to enjoy this time. But here's the deal. God is solid. God is a solid foundation. He is the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. And that's why we can depend on him. And that's how we can trust him. His heart does not fluctuate. His heart is not changed by football scores or chocolate milkshakes. Right? He is not that easily influenced. He is a solid foundation. Another way we can describe the heart is that the heart can be defined as the vital force or driving impulse for someone. For example, if we said, man, that, that guy has a heart for missions, it means that what he says and what he does is driven by his heart, by his passion for missions. And throughout Scripture, this is the most common way that we see the term, the heart being used. So it's this, this uh, vital force, a driving impulse for somebody. The heart represents the center of one's motivations, 
the center of their desires, the center of their inclinations, right? It is our heart when we talk about this. It is our heart that determines why we say the things that we do. If you go into Matthew 12, it says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is the heart that determines the way that we feel the way that we do. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's that heart that leads to our thoughts and intentions. And the heart determines the way we act, why we do the things that we do. The psalmist just wrote, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander, wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So that word directs our actions. Our hearts determine what we say, how we feel, how we act, or why we do the things that we do. The heart is the real us. The heart is the center of who, center, not sinner, center of who we are. That is why we are told again in Psalms that above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So these next 10 weeks, this is why we're going to be looking at the heart of God, specifically his heart towards us when we run from him, when we are struggling with our own brokenness and own things in our own world, and even his heart for us when we begin to question him. Why does he continue to seek us? Why does he continue to love us? And the short answer is because that's his heart. I pray that during this study we come to know the heart of God more and as Melissa read earlier in Ephesians that we would come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. So part of the reason that we're studying this is so that we could know God more, that we could love God more and that we could have pure worship of God. Here's what is fascinating is when we talk about the heart and how it's the center of everything. In Jesus's 33 years on life and his three years in ministry, there's only one spot recorded in the Gospels where Jesus describes his own heart. One spot. It's about the middle of his ministry. He's about a year, year and a half into his ministry. The opposition toward him is beginning to grow. The, the religious leaders are being threatened now by him as they are seeing somebody teach like they've never seen before. They are seeing the truth like they've never heard before. And they're becoming nervous. And they're starting to mount their attacks against Jesus. And now even people are starting to question, who is this guy? What is this gospel that he is talking about? What is this kingdom he keeps referring to? And they're starting to have some questions. And in Matthew eleven twenty through 24, Jesus responds to these questions. Jesus responds to these attacks, and he warns them about the judgment that is going to come for those who don't believe the gospel. For those who see his works and hear his teaching, yet they fail to repent. Right? These people continue to put their faith in themselves. They put it in their institutions, in their government, or in their religious practice. And they end up ultimately rejecting Jesus, rejecting his teachings, and rejecting the gospel. However, it's after this warning, after Jesus says, woe to these cities, like these bad things are going to happen, it's going to be better for Sodom than it is for you, it's going to be better for Gomorrah than it is for you on the day of judgment. Jesus pauses for a minute. He's talking to a mixed group of people, and he offers an invitation. He offers an invitation to those who are broken and tired, for those that are seeking rest, 
And if we go to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, we see this invitation that Jesus says. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's here in this invitation that Matthew, the the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, that he captures Jesus describing his heart. Right In this passage, Jesus said, gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The words that Jesus used to describe his own heart are gentle and lowly. And I'm going to be really, really honest with you, and I probably shouldn't say this as a pastor, but those are not the words that I would use to describe God's heart. Gentle and lowly for the guy, the, the one holy one. We're going to say he's, he's lowly, but this is the one holy God. He is all-powerful. When I think of gentle, I don't think of all-powerful. We talk about all-knowing, the final judge. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He is the king of kings. He sends fire down to earth. The waves stop when he tells them to stop. The wind blows when he says go. And Jesus describes his own heart as just gentle and lowly. See, but when we start to think about it and we understand what those words mean and what they show us about God's heart, we start to learn that those words demonstrate his complete power and his total love for his creation. His gentle and lowly heart is why he is worthy to be praised by all creation. It is his gentle and lowly heart that invites each of us to find rest and to find comfort in the all-powerful King And this morning, I just want to look at these two words, gentle and lowly. And if we understand these words, we will understand the offer, the invitation that Jesus makes. We'll also be able to identify who he extends that invitation to. And we're going to look at that this morning, and then I will end with, conclude with what it looks like when we respond to that invitation. If that is something that we are going to do, what does that mean and what does that look like? So let's just start with what Jesus offers Jesus offers rest. And to help us understand what Jesus is offering, we need to understand the illustration that Jesus is using. My guess is, I'm in Los Angeles in 2021, that there's not a whole lot of people in this room or listening or watching that have ever used a yoke to plow fields. Right, that's, I grew up in the ag capital of the world in Fresno, and the only time I saw a yoke was like on the wall for decoration. Um, I will say that overseas, you see them quite a bit, and they're still being used in many countries. But we're just going to make the assumption now that you guys don't really know what I'm talking about. So we're going to go through Jesus' yoke and what that meant. Here's a very, very simple explanation. The yoke was designed for two animals. The two animals on which the yoke was placed, they they were the same type of animal. But they were usually different as far as maturity and age and strength. And one of the animals was always more experienced than the other. Thus, the second animal became somewhat of a learner. The experienced animal, the bigger one, the the leader, he provided the direction that they were going to be plowing. He provided the leadership for the team. He helped and trained the other member of the team. He provided that guidance for the other animal. So that leader would usually focus on the main one, the, the human, and then that would control that team. So those animals were yoked together. In the first century and in the Jewish culture, The yoke we often hear often was a metaphor used for the law. 
for the Jewish law. So we'll talk about being yoked to the law or being yoked on the law. This makes perfect sense because the law was used to teach and provide direction for the Jewish community, for the Jewish people. So that makes sense to say that that was the leader and we were going to be following that. The Mosaic law itself was not intended to be burdensome, but it was more of a blessing to the humble people who submitted themselves to God, who submitted themselves and trusted God so they would try to the, the follow the law and the law was a, a blessing to them. However, over time, religious leaders who, who couldn't keep the law, but they're religious leaders, so they get to make up more laws and they start twisting God's law and, into a means of self-glorification. They start using it to pump themselves up, to exalt themselves, to show off by observing these unnecessary flamboyant ways that were designed to lift them up. Like, I can't do what the law says, so I'm going to create my own law so I look good. And then I'm going to remind everybody else how in, inadequate they are and that they need to be better somehow, that they need to do, you guys are, are too dumb to take care of yourself, so I'm going to give you a law and you're going to follow me. We're talking about the Jewish law, we're not talking about politics today, so leave that out. We're going to skip over that. There, there sound like some similarities, I hear that, but we're just going to go. Um, so that, that's what the law was for. And as Jesus is speaking to this mixed crowd, he's speaking to both the religious leaders and to the general public. So he's speaking to those that have created some of these laws, that have added to the burden of these laws, and he's also speaking to people that are feeling the burden of these laws. These people are exhausted. They're trying to carry this impossible load. And here's the deal. They're not just looking for rest. They are in dire, dire need of rest. They are at a breaking point. They know that they cannot keep this up. They were exhausted from trying to measure up to these expectations of the law because they thought that's what they had to do to be in a right relationship with God. And so they were working and working and working and working. These unrealistic expectations. It was killing them, these burdens. But, it, but here's what's amazing. is As a pastor, right, somebody who teaches about the grace of God, somebody who's, who, who says I, I know about the grace of God as much as I, my mind is able to and how quickly I can revert back to depending on my own abilities. How quickly I can revert back to relying on my only effort, on just my self-effort on how I do it. I get so freaked out about preparing messages because I'm not going to do it well and I think it depends on me. Right? And that's what we talk about going into this cycle and I become tired and exhausted as these burdens of false expectations, these burdens of self-imposed religious requirements begin to just pile up on my back, begin to pile and pile and pile. And as I look at a church, I'm willing to bet there's lots of you that are getting tired from carrying some of that weight too. Trying to carry some of those self-imposed requirements, those fake, false religious requirements that we just pile on ourselves that we can't find in Scripture, but somehow we have said we have to do this ourselves. Right, we try to rely on our own efforts to maintain a right relationship with Jesus. Man, we're tired. <laughs> we are tired and we look at this passage and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm coming to you and this does not feel like the rest that you promised. This is a far cry from the rest that you promised. Man, it's really, really hard to be perfect. It's really, really hard to try to be perfect. And we could go to Scripture and remember, Jesus said it, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Man, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure on us, and it manifests itself in strained relationships, relationships in the church, right? It's hard to have healthy relationships when you're trying to pretend that you're perfect. 
as a pastor, one of the things that just breaks my heart is when people leave a church, right? I'm not saying they leave the faith. They leave a faith family. They leave a local church and go somewhere else because people in that church found out they're not perfect. Guess what? Don't do that. We know that. You're just kidding yourselves, right? It is that faith family when we're having struggles and difficulties that we can rely on, that we can go to in those tough times, It's a hard, hard way to live trying to be perfect. And it leads to depression and stress, feelings of inadequacy. We seek to get rid of that burden, and this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We've got a whole lot to do. We've got a whole bunch of burdens, so we want to get rid of them, so we create more burdens for ourselves, right? And we start piling them up. We say, hey, I've got to impress those around me. I've got to start giving more and serving more. Going to one more study, because if I go to three Bible studies, that means I'm good, right? Adding a new spiritual discipline. It's all really, really tiring, And it does not match the rest that Jesus is talking about. See, Jesus offers rest to his disciples from the burden of these religious observance, of these religious rituals as a means of attaining self-worth. We don't do these religious activities. We don't participate in these things so we can feel better about ourselves. That's not why we do them. And Jesus says, don't do that. And when we come to Jesus, when we give up, when we say, I'm done following myself, I'm going to follow you, that's where we realize the true gentleness of God's heart. Because we know that the standard of perfection is impossible for us to reach. And I'm sure many people here have tried to reach it. But guess what? It's still what God demands. It is still what he uh, requires is that we are perfect. But here's the deal, that God loved us so much that he sent his son. Right? For, his, for 33 years, Jesus did the one thing that we can never, ever do, and that is be perfect he met God's standard of perfection he met that perfection for us Paul wrote this this truth to the church in Corinth Paul said this for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so it's called the great exchange right we gave him our sin and he gives us his righteousness It is through his sinless life and subsequent death and resurrection that he makes us righteous. There's nothing that we can do. And in him we have complete and total rest if we trust that. One of the greatest evangelists of the 18th century, George Whitfield, he said this. It's written in the 18th century, so I'm going to try not to stumble over this. Thus the poor sinner is hurried from duty to duty and still finds no rest. All things are uneasy and disquiet within, and there remains no rest in the soul. And if it was to go through all the duties of religion and read over a thousand manuals of prayer, none would ever give the soul any rest. Nothing will until it goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is the only true rest, that it is the rest which abideth and will continue forever. Listen to this. It is not in your own works, nor in your endeavors. No, when Christ comes into your soul, he pardons you without any respect to your works, either past, present, or to come. We would say amen, and we say we believe that, and we say, yeah, I trust in God's grace. But do we really believe what we really believe is true? When we are in our quiet time, do we see God as a grace-filled God 
that we pray to and ask for forgiveness, or do we see him as a task master? Right, he has his list and he's checking it twice, the list of things that we're supposed to do and the things that we aren't supposed to do. And he's looking, are you doing these things? Are you doing these things? And we work harder to do or not to do whatever we're supposed to be doing. And as we work harder and harder and harder, we miss out on the rest that comes with yoking ourselves to Jesus. We miss the rest that comes when we are yoked to Jesus and we are found righteous through Jesus, not through anything that we have done. But here's the thing. Sometimes we're afraid to yoke ourselves to Jesus. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons, and some of it's because our parents told us to be careful who we are friends with because it's easier to pull somebody up than it is to pull them down. Have you heard that saying before? Be careful who your friends are. It's easier to pull somebody up than pull them down. And you don't want to pull God down. People, maybe you, think that somehow they can make God less holy. That somehow they can have an effect on God and make him less holy. The problem is, is he's already done the work. Jesus has already gone to the cross. Jesus has already pulled you up. There is no way that you can pull God down. You have to be really, really arrogant to think that. Right? Or maybe you have a low view of God. And you don't see God as God the creator, God almighty. You don't see that. I don't know what the church word for stupid is. I'm not allowed to stay at my home. I probably shouldn't stay here. But that sounds like the most appropriate word for another option. Right? If you think that somehow you can contaminate God. His gentle heart is never outmatched by our sins, our shortcomings, our insecurities, our doubts, and failures. I want you to notice that that's not or failures, right? And failures. If we can take all of this stuff, we take all this stuff and we put it together, we can give it to God, and God will give us rest. God will take all of that stuff, and he will give us rest. Because his gentle heart desires to. That is his heart. That is what he wants to do. It is Jesus' heart that offers us true rest. It is the center of who he is. And so we know that Jesus' heart offers rest. That's his invitation to, for rest. But we have to read this passage and we have to see who does he extend this to? Who does he invite? Who does he make this offer of rest to? When we read that passage, you say he invites the tired, right? those that are work, when we keep going through it, the broken, the ones that are messy, that's who Jesus invites. That's who Jesus makes this offer to. Jesus doesn't invite those who have found their self-worth in themselves. He doesn't invite the self-satisfied, and he doesn't invite the self-righteous. If you look at verse 28, Jesus makes it very clear. All who labor and are heavy laden. Time and time again, when we read through Scripture, when we go through the, the, the Gospels, we see that it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable, the unworthy, the unexpected, the unqualified, the undeserving, who don't just simply receive Christ's mercy, who don't just receive his grace, but it is those people that we see that Jesus naturally gravitates to. It is those people we see Jesus reaching out his hands towards. And he extends to them his presence. 
Jesus, by his own enemies. Jesus was described as a friend of sinners. That is where we see Jesus with the broken and with the the messy. He invites the tired and the worn out. He invites them to him for rest. And so many of us think, oh, I'm too messy. Jesus will never have anything to do with me. Here's the truth. It's that messiness that qualifies you for him. It is that messiness that qualifies you for that invitation to come and see him, to receive the rest that he provides. The holy son of God moves towards and he touches and he heals and he embraces and he forgives those who least deserve it but truly desire it. Too often we try to clean ourselves up. We say, oh, I'll come to God later, but I got to fix this. I got this brokenness. I got this mess. I, usually it has to do with a family for some reason, but I got this family situation I want to take care of before I come to God, right? Before we turn to Jesus for healing and restoring our broken hearts, before he gives us life. This doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's like not calling the fire department when your house is on fire because, well, there's smoke in the house and that's going to bug them. Or maybe the kitchen's a mess. Or I just woke up. I'm not, I'm not ready for company. It's only the first floor. It doesn't really matter. I'll deal with it later. Like that doesn't make any sense. But that's what we find ourselves doing. And sometimes we, we, we do this because we're being prideful. And other times we do it because we're foolish. Right? We don't think that Jesus is able to reach the depths of where we are, that he can reach our brokenness, that he can reach our sorrow, that he can reach the, the, the depths of our sin and our hopelessness and our suffering. We don't think that he can reach down to where we are. But church, God put on flesh. Now, when, we, when we read through scripture, he put on flesh so he could be where you are. So he could reach down and grab you. The author of Hebrews writes it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has been wherever you find yourself. Jesus has been there and he's reaching out to you. Jesus is lowly in heart. He is humbled he is literally low so he can be exactly where you are we cannot ever be so low that jesus cannot stoop down reach down and pick him up we are never too low ever to be out of the reach of jesus christ by being gentle and lowly in heart god invites all of us who are weary and heavy laden with our sins all of us none of us are too low None of us are too lost. None of us are too bad. None of us have such a history that God wouldn't understand that we can't go to him and find the rest that he promises. His heart, listen to this, his heart desires to give you rest, to give you life. And in this passage, he invites you to come, to come to to me, he says. And that invitation is there. 
Jesus has invited you to come to him. And now here's the problem for some of you is you only have two options now that you've been invited. You can reject it or you can repent it, right? You can repent it. You can repent. Those are the only two options for you. Once that offer has been made, we can reject it or repent. And sometimes when we don't make a decision, a decision is made for us. And in this case, a non-decision is rejecting the gospel. A non-decision is rejecting the truths that Jesus taught. In verse 21, Jesus listed off cities that have heard the authoritative teachings. They have seen his works, and they still rejected him. They still rejected his teachings. They rejected his missions. They rejected who he was. They rejected the gospel, and Jesus says, woe to them. We're not going to get into a big theology discussion here, but it is never good if God says, woe to you. That is not a good place to be, and that is where you will find yourself if you continue to reject the gospel. However, in Scripture, God promises this, that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That is something many of us have said and we've heard that many times over and over. That was an invitation to to God's community, to his people. But when we look in Matthew, God gives you a personal invitation. God says, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. So Jesus is standing by and he is reaching out and he is ready to help those, not those that help themselves, he's ready to help those that humble themselves. Enough to admit their need for his mercy and his grace. And he delights in helping those who humble themselves because that is his heart. That is his heart. We need to stop trying to find salvation in ourselves and in our sacrifices and our works and our deeds. And your, your heart, doesn't matter what you do, it's never going to be good enough outside of Jesus. You are going to crush yourself under the burdens. You are going to miss the, the rest that Jesus is talking about. If you're chasing some type of religious ritual, if you're chasing some type of false religion, if you're chasing anything and trusting anything but Jesus, you will die tired. But if you come to Jesus, you will find the rest that your soul desires. You'll find the rest that only Jesus can provide. And what stops people from enjoying this rest and seeing their land and seeing their hearts healed? It's failing to repent. Having to admit that we are sinners and need a Savior and and trust in Jesus. When people say, hey, you don't need to be offensive when sharing the gospel because the the gospel is offensive enough. That's what they're talking about. Because part of the gospel is telling people, you're not good enough. I don't think you can say that to a sixth grade soccer team right now. You get like fired. But the gospel says, you're not good enough. You can't reach the standard and that offends a lot of people. Right? But that's part of the gospel is that we have to admit that we're sinners that we have to admit that we need a Savior, then we have to trust Jesus. Trusting Jesus means that we follow him. That is part of repentance. Church, if you're not trying to follow 
Jesus, if you're not modeling obedience, if you're not looking at the scriptures and say, oh, I need to fix myself so I can better resemble this, you're still following yourself, right? When you look at scripture, you're like, ugh, I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that or, no, that's not important to me. You're following yourself. You haven't repented. You haven't turned. You haven't said, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, much less you haven't yoked up to him to be your teacher and to be your trainer. Unfortunately, I meet with a lot of people in church. I meet with a ton of people and I have a ton of meetings. And people say, oh, I'm a sinner. And oh, yeah, yeah, I need a savior. And oh, yeah, Jesus is that savior. But you're crazy if you think I'm gonna follow him. Right, what, what if I'm wrong? What if there's a better option? What if he wants me to do something I don't wanna do? And you haven't repented. That is not repentance. And part of repentance is when we turn from our ways and we turn to Jesus. We say, oh, I trust Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. And what that means is I follow him. <laughs> right? Savior means he saved me. But Lord is he is the person that I follow. Repentance is so much more than just acknowledging our sin and need for a Savior. It's turning ourselves towards Jesus and then yoking ourselves to him to join him that is what we call being a disciple of Jesus that is what it looks like when somebody has repented and when we become disciples when we have repented we love God we live like Jesus and somehow in the middle of all that through all of our mess and our restoration and all this craziness and dysfunctionality in our lives. Somehow when we love God and we try to live like Jesus, God uses us to help others love God and live like Jesus. Right? He says, that is my disciple and somehow don't ask, I I don't know. (laughs) There's a lot of people I look at that have discipled me and I'm like, how did you use them, God? There's a lot of people if you look at in your life, you're going to be like, I didn't see that one coming. But it's somehow through the grace of God that he, he uses us. And when we are there, when we are in that place, when we are walking with Jesus, when we are loving God, when we are modeling obedience to our friends and family, when we are yoked with God, when we are yoked to Jesus, then we find the rest that he offers and the rest that he promises. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And he offers rest to all who are tired and broken and messy And you just simply have to yoke yourself to Jesus to find the rest that not only you desire, but to find the rest that he desires to give to you. And there are people in this room, I promise you right now, that have never made a commitment to follow Jesus. That have maybe said Jesus is nice or that he's a good guy or maybe he's a a good teacher, but I'm not going to trust him with my life. You are rejecting the gospel. That is no secret. It is in Scripture. But here's the deal. You don't, you're not stuck there. Right? You can repent and say, God, I'm done following myself. I'm ready to follow you. Right? I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to turn. It's that military term. I'm doing a place and go a new direction. We can do that. You can do that. And some of you think, well, maybe I did or maybe I didn't. I have no idea what the date. It's September 12th. Guess what? Make it in your heart and your mind today that September 12th, I made a commitment to follow God. This is when I'm going to follow God. Some of you are saying, oh, I've done that before. 
but I've never been baptized because it's not that important. Right? We talk about baptism as one of the first steps of obedience to God. It's one of our first steps of obedience in the walk. And if you've never been baptized, I'd love to talk to you and, man, celebrate with the church family as we start this new study on the heart of God, what it means to make a commitment to follow God and to trust his heart. And then there's some people in here who say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love God. He's a great savior. But I haven't yoked myself to him. Right? Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've grown up for 20 years in the church. But God has never used you to make a disciple. That would have to make you question, man, are you loving God? Are you modeling obedience? That's the one thing that we're called to do as a church is to make disciples. And when you look back at your life, and so we could look back to September 12th and say, hey, this is the day that I'm going to yoke myself to Jesus, that I'm going to just love God with everything that I am, that I'm going to live like Jesus as best I can, and I'm going to intentionally help others do the same. I'm going to invite the worship team up right now, and as we play this last song, I would just ask you, we're actually going to do a song where I'm just going to have you sit down, that you just stay where you are, and you just think. You think about God's heart. You think about his invitation to you, his personal invitation to you. And what is he asking of you? Is he asking you to make a commitment to follow Christ? Is he asking you to get baptized? Is he asking you to join a, a community group and share life and do life with other people in your local faith family? But you would just take this time, reflect on that invitation, and then more importantly, give a response. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just come before you with humble hearts today. Lord, as we study your heart, and as we learn of your desire to give us rest, as we learn of your love for us, and as you sent your son so that we could have rest, so we would not have to try to uh, um, be burdened by all these, these different things, that we could just be focused on your son that we could just have peace, that we could rest in your comfort and in knowing you. Lord, I just pray for all the people that you are speaking to their heart, all the people that you are talking to and grabbing hearts. Lord, I just pray that they would follow your lead. I pray that they would have the courage to take the steps that you're asking them to. And for some, Lord, that they would be able to put a lock on that yoke between you and them for the first time. Lord, we are so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for your heart and your desire to give us rest. We're so grateful for your love for us, Lord, that we just pray that we would just take this time, remove all distractions, and turn our focus, our hearts, and our minds, and our eyes on you, and that we would listen to how you're speaking to us. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in your son's name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.